Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to Elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up in the glass house today, I'm really excited to be joined by an incredible journalist, author, writer, uh, Tanya Taliga, um, who's been on the show before, and I'm very excited to welcome her back. Her book, Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death and the Hard Truths in a Northern City, has been republished by Scribe Publications here in Australia. It was originally published uh, in 2017 in Canada, and it's a true crime investigation in to the deaths of seven Indigenous high school students who died in Thunder Bay um, in a nine-year period between 2000 and 2011. And I suppose whilst it tells the stories of these deaths and the lead-up to these deaths and the context surrounding them, the book really investigates the larger context of colonial Canada and its long struggle with human rights violations against local Indigenous communities and how that history really plagues its young people to this very day. And it's a history that's not all too dissimilar to that of colonial Australia. So there's some very interesting parallels between uh, their story and and this story of this country and its people. So as you might be able to tell, it is a content warning for this interview. We will be discussing death and homicide. So yeah, do listen with care. If that's something that you don't have in you today, that's totally fine. You might want to tune out. But I do hope you can stay with me. When Toronto Star reporter Tanya Taliga went to Thunder Bay, Ontario in 2011, it was to write a story about why First Nation people were not voting in the federal election. But instead, she came across a more important story, the deaths of seven First Nation students who were living in Thunder Bay to attend high school. Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death and Hard Truths in a Northern City is a true crime investigation into the deaths of Jethro Anderson, Kurang Strang, Paul Panchisi, Robin Harper, Reggie Bushy, Kyle uh, Morisot and Jordan Wabas, who all died between 2000 and 2011. Each of them were hundreds of kilometres away from family, forced to leave home to pursue their high school education, and each living in an unwelcome, each living in an unwelcoming city that was tarred with racism. Joining me this afternoon to speak about this really incredible book is award-winning investigative journalist Tanya Taliga. Tanya. Welcome back to The Glass House, and thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's nice to speak to you again. Um, It's a real pleasure to have you back and and talk to you about uh, a book that you wrote before um, all our relations. I I did have you on, um, I can't even remember when it was now, time is honey, um, given COVID. But, you know, this is, it really does feel like um, this was kind of the natural precursor to the other book that I spoke to you about. 
You know, Seven Fallen Feathers is um, a book that really starts with you um, going into to Thunder Bay um, as a journalist for the Toronto Star and going in there to write a story that is very different to the one that you ended up really pursuing um, quite deeply. I'm interested, I suppose, can you tell me, can you take me back to that time and, and what that progression was like from that first encounter to, to this book? You know, it was um, such a different time in journalism. It was such a different time in, um, um, in Canadian media when I um, when I went ten years ago, I can't believe it's ten years actually. Now that I think about it, um, in 2011, we were having a federal election, just like we are right now, actually in Canada. And uh, I had pitched to my editor, um, I had pitched to her a story idea. I wanted to do a story on why it is Indigenous people in Canada basically don't vote um, in federal elections. And um, when I pitched that to her, I have to tell you that I was being a bit sneaky. I knew that if you are a status Indian in this country, you did not get the right to vote until 1960. And um, um, that was, you know, a large part of the reason behind why it is a lot of Indigenous peoples were not voting. And um, when I pitched the idea, um, my editor thought it was exotic. Uh, what a great and different idea. Um, just 10 years ago in Canada, um, First Nations news, news on Indigenous peoples was really tough to come by. Um, a lot of the mainstream press, and I was working for a mainstream newspaper, didn't want to publish a lot of stories about Indigenous people. They thought that the readers didn't care, that they didn't want to hear those stories anymore. I mean, I would get that constantly from my editors at the paper. You know, no one wants to read those stories. Um, or why do you want to write those stories? They're all the same. Um, and of course, you know, um, as an Indigenous person, hearing that constantly was pretty tough. But at this time, though, I did get the green light and the go-ahead to travel about 2,000 kilometers north of uh, Toronto, where I was working at the paper, to go to Thunder Bay. And the reason why I wanted to go there was because my mom is Anishinaabe. Um, she's from Fort William First Nation, which is in Thunder Bay. And so um, I, I did go up there. And when I went up there, I sat with the Grand Chief of Anishinaabe uh, Aski Nation, which is 49 communities, reserved communities in Ontario's north. And we sat uh, together and I asked him a question about the election and he asked me, why aren't you writing about Jordan? And I thought, you know, for sure I must be mumbling or not sounding clear. So I repeated my question and he said to me, um, Jordan's been missing for 70 days. So we went back and forward like that for quite a while. I'd ask about the election, and he'd tell me a fact about Jordan. He would say, you know, Jordan is 15. He's in grade 9. Um, he's from Webakwe First Nation, this community far away. Um, and he was down in Thunder Bay on his own. And um, it wasn't until about 10 minutes of that, of going back and forth, that I realized I was not going to get my question answered. And I also took a breath and realized that I was sitting in front of a grand chief. And I realized who I was too as an Indigenous person and I had to listen respectfully to what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like to hear that I opened my ears and I heard 
um, him say that Jordan was the seventh student to go missing or to die in Thunder Bay since 2000. Um, and that was the journey. Um, I started writing newspaper stories about it. Um, I never handed in that piece on the election. Um, and I eventually knew that those stories would turn into a book because what I wanted to say, I could not really contain or explain in, um, a newspaper article. Mm. It's such it's such a big story. You know, the story that you've covered does cover, you know, nine years. I am interested before we kind of dive deeper into the story, um, as you said, kind of being a journalist and kind of coming up um, to that first conversation and kind of almost like having your journalist hat on where you go there to get the story, you have to come back, you have to give something to your editor. I'm interested for you what that, um, I suppose, journey was like traveling from kind of having your journalist um, instincts on to, as you said, just sitting there and listening, which of course you would be amazing at because you are a journalist. But um, I suppose it's a different type of work when you kind of go to do these stories, perhaps for um, a longer form project. Is that something that resonates with you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, um, it was, you know, um, like when um, the Grand Chief of Anishinaabe Asking Nation um, started saying words that I was hearing, you know, it was like something just totally switched in me. And it was like, you know, it was like the light coming into the darkness and I could really hear what he was saying. And what he was saying was like, you know, why aren't you an indigenous woman paying attention to what I'm trying to tell you? And, you know, I was like, my God, he's right. Like, I'm just, I've been in this colonial headspace for so long and that I just did, I wasn't hearing what he was saying. And then when he did, it was like this light switch came on and, um, you know, it really did change the course of, and the trajectory of not just my career, but also my life, mm. um, you know, how am I connected to the story? And so this is like a big answer to your question, but that does change your writing. That changes your writing because, you know, who you are. I mean, uh, even as journalists, no matter how um, objective we have to be and we tell ourselves we're being, we're not really, right? When you look at the stories we pick, when you look at what we choose to cover, um, cause you know, eventually journalists, once you get a little bit older, you do get to choose those stories and you do get to cover things, you know, you find your voice in a different way. And, um, my voice was there. It was just buried under a lot of colonial stuff. Mm. <laughs> It is. It's, uh, you know, you, you can tell a lot about a journalist by what stories they cover. I think you're incredibly right there. You know, the book opens um, by, I suppose, talking about these um, seven guiding principles of the Anishiabe. I, I hope I'm saying that right. Can you tell me, uh, I suppose, wh what they are and, and about the significance of the number seven? Oh, uh, good for that. So the um, we have seven, uh, seven sacred teachings um, and the Anishinaabe, I mean, I am an Anishinaabe person. Um, Anishinaabe, um, we are the original people. That was is what Anishinaabe means. And um, the seven sacred teachings are teachings about love, teachings on humility, bravery, wisdom, respect, humility, honesty, it's about truth. Those teachings are very integral to, you know, who we are. 
And without those teachings, we would be lost as a people, rudderless, um, you know, uncertain of who we are and where we're going in life. And so um, I thought that it would be a good idea to remind everyone um, right from the outset of the book, as these are the principles that guide us as Anishinaabeg people. Um, but they're also good principles to live by. You know, um, you could be Indigenous or not Indigenous, but those those seven words um, carry so much heft and weight. You know, learning how to 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 walk with humility in this life is is a beautiful thing, and to respect others, to be brave, to show love. And, you know, and to know all of these teachings is to know the last teaching, and that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And so when I thought about opening this book, I said, well, you know, we have to look at these seven teachings. Um, and that's that's how I framed the book, actually. Mm. I think it's a really amazing way to frame the book because essentially this feels like a quest for truth. You know, it's a quest for truth, not only for yourself, but for the families and also the community at large. And I suppose the larger um, Indigenous communities that exist um, in Canada. I'm interested, I suppose, you know, this book really investigates what happened at Thunder Bay. And in many ways, the the physicality of Thunder Bay is a very important, I suppose, place to understand. I, I suppose, can you tell me a little bit about the, what, Thunder Bay is like and a little bit about the history of the area. Thanks for that question. Um, Thunder Bay is a really beautiful, beautiful place. It's a northern city. So um, if you think of Canada, um, most people would be familiar with Toronto. Uh, Toronto is where I live. It's the largest city in the country. You know, we've got, oh my gosh, three, four million people here in the city proper, um, and then millions more around us in the in bedroom communities. And Thunder Bay is about 2,000 kilometers north of, of here. Um, it is a city on the, you know, all the Great Lakes. Um, Toronto's in the, on Lake Ontario, and Thunder Bay is on the largest of the Great Lakes, which is Lake Superior, Gichigami. And Gishigami is the largest freshwater lake in the world. It's a physically, you know, daunting lake. It looks like an ocean. Um, and it's never, honestly, warm enough to swim in ever in Thunder Bay when you're, when you're there. Um, Thunder Bay is a, is a beautiful place. It's, it's, it's um, full of old, old mountains um, that are, you know, so ebbed by time. Um, they, they often have flat tops to them. Um, it's a beautiful place that is, you know, there's lots of bears, there's moose, there's fox, gorgeous cedar trees. Um, the weather can be difficult. In the winter, it gets awfully cold. In the summer, you're warm for a few months and then that's it, it's over. Um, but as I said, the lake never, ever gets warm enough really to swim in maybe one day or two days at the end of July, beginning of August, which is in the midst of our summer months. But other than that, um, it's it's quite cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lake Superior, Kichigami, sort of rules the landscape of Thunder Bay, its weather patterns. Um, weather can change so suddenly in the city of Thunder Bay. You can go from bright, sunny skies to a thunder shower in an instant. Um, and it's a place that's been divided too. When you, when you think of the people that live there, I mean, my people have been there for tens of thousands of years. Um, and the, um, settlers have been there for about a hundred, 120 years. Um, 
that I should say those are the British settlers. The French have been there longer because the French were courier de bois. They were trappers. They were coming into the area. But, but still, I mean, um, our people have been there the longest. And Thunder Bay now, today itself, is a very divided city. Um, I said in the book it's a red face and a white face. Mm-hmm. There's the indigenous face, and then there's a non-indigenous face in Thunder Bay. And that divide is still very much felt. Mm. Thank you for describing that. I think the physicality of the place is so important to this work and this book. You know, the students that we are talking about that um, that died in this period of time all came from remote communities, uh, like many hundreds of kilometres away from Thunder Bay. They're coming to Thunder Bay so that they can pursue an education. You know, there's a point in the book where I think it's one of the parents um, says, you know, it's almost this trade-off between allowing your children or, you know, wanting your children to have this kind of formal education or keeping them safe because there had at that point been a history of people that had died um, in Thunder Bay. I'd love if you can tell us a little bit about the education system and what that looked like when these um, students were going to pursue their education in in, in Thunder Bay and, and what motivated people to go. Thanks for that question. Um, so, the Northern First Nations communities um, in Northern Ontario, so the province of Ontario, um, Thunder Bay is uh, one of the um, most northern cities, if not the most northern city in um, Ontario. And so you've got this big, vast landmass that's about the size of the country of France. And that is all uh, muskeg, that is all boreal forest. Um, there was all massive freshwater lakes um, all over the place. It's a beautiful, pristine part of uh, of the country. And so you have all of these communities, um, about 50 communities, and most of those communities range in size from 600 people to about 3,000 people. Um, most of the communities do not have traffic lights. They don't have shopping malls. There are no stores. There are no high schools. There are no hospitals. Um, If you want access to a doctor or a specialist, if you need tests done, or if you want a high school education, you have to get on a plane and travel about 500, 600 kilometers away um, just to to access those basic, basic things that every other Canadian can access in this country. Um, And so the kids that are coming in to go to school in Thunder Bay, they're boarded in someone's home. Um, Often they don't know the people that are boarding them. Um, When they come into Thunder Bay, they're 13, 14, 15. They um, speak English as a second language. Um, Seeing a city and seeing the lights, seeing traffic lights, it's something that's totally not something they're not used to. They have to learn how to walk across the street um, with traffic signals. They have to learn how to ride buses. Um, Going to the mall is an exotic and wild thing um, because there are no malls where where the kids are from. So it's a real culture shock. um, And it's made worse if you're in a city. Imagine, like, you know, not only are you away from your parents and everything you know, but you're also in a place that doesn't want you, Mm -hmm. where people drive by in their cars and throw garbage at you when you're walking down the street or they call you names or they tell you to go back home, you know, you dirty Indian. Um, and this is what our kids live with just walking to school. Um, so that's, 
it's it's a sad thing and that's that's the and that's today too that's 2021 in mm. canada mm. thank you for for sharing that this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about triple r or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the triple r website at rrr.org.au if you have just joined us, um, we are speaking to Tanya Talaga all about her book, Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death and Hard Truths in a Northern City. I think it's so important to talk about that overt racism that uh, comes across in the book that happens in Thunder Bay because, you know, as you've, as you've said, there are these uh, young Indigenous students that are kind of flying in from all different parts. They're kind of in a new city, they don't have their parents. Um, they are, yeah, as you said, experiencing these really uh, awful and overt um, experiences of, of racism um, and they're navigating this whole different world and it's something that, you know, you gave a really um, kind of important and um, good context for each of the different students and what it was like in the lead up to um, many, uh, their disappearance and then um, later their death. I think... Um, and also another key part of this story is the way in which once um, some of the students or sorry, once all of the students essentially went missing or something was happening, you know, the way that the Thunder Bay police responded to their um, going missing, you know, it shows a complete, I suppose, a, d a deliberate incompetence. Um, you know, they kind of went on to misreport the way in which they tried to solve these cases. Can you speak to me a little bit about the role that the Thunder Bay police played in the ways in which these um, these deaths were responded to and, and I suppose investigated? Thank you for that question as well. Um, sadly, the just as you said, the Thunder Bay police were uh, quote-unquote, missing in action for a lot of the time. I mean, when the first boy, Jethro Anderson, went missing um, in, actually it was October 1st, 2000, that he went missing, um, he was, he had just turned 15, actually. Yeah, just turned 15. He was in grade 9. So he was a, he was a very young boy. Um, and when his aunt you know, he was a lucky one because he was staying with his his aunt, a family member, um, um, you know, away from his community. So he had someone who loved him that was taking care of him. And when he didn't come that come home that Saturday night, um, his aunt, uh, Dora Morris, went looking for him. Um, she drove up and down the streets of Thunder Bay in her minivan, you know, looking for Jethro. And when she got home that night at around 2 o'clock in the morning, she called the police and said, you know, my, my nephew's missing. And the police, that, oh, that um, the officer that answered the phone said, oh, don't worry about it. He's probably just out there partying like all the other Native kids. Mm -hmm. And then he hung the phone up. Um, and it took the Thunder Bay police six days to look for a missing 15-year-old boy. And meanwhile, uh, members of his community uh, from Casabonica had come down to uh, Thunder Bay, you know, had flown down, and they were conducting their own searches for him along the rivers and the parks, um, everywhere, really. And not that wasn't isolated. That wasn't mm -hmm. an isolated case. We saw that in every single one of the children's uh, disappearance. Um, the police were missing in action 
They were late to respond. Um, and when they did respond, there was hardly any investigation into what happened. Um, you would always see after a quote unquote investigation, um, the police would put out a press release that basically said no foul play suspected, nothing to see here. Um, and those investigations have been called into question, um, so much so that actually four of the seven fallen feather cases have been reopened and are um, being reinvestigated by a multidisciplinary task force. And that um, that uh, report is expected on those four deaths um, actually any time now. Mm. I would love to talk a little bit more about the, the inquest into the deaths because you know, something that you talk about in the book is the the real necessity of a jury that has First Nations people on it. Um, because obviously this, you know, this racism that is embedded in the so-called justice system has seen this real lack of urgency in the way that we're responding to these 15-year-old kids that have gone missing. It is just, you know, it's 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 mad. I just have no words. You know, I'd, I'd love if you can talk to me, I suppose, a bit about what that process looked like and, um, yeah, w- how close we are now or w- what that's looking like currently. Yeah, the um, inquest was um, was hard fought for, um, you know, Alvin Fiddler, who became the uh, Grand Chief of Anishinaabeaski Nation after Stan Verity um, stepped down. Um, he pushed hard for an inquest and he did so with a lawyer, Julian Faulkner in, uh, um, really quite a famous, uh, Canadian human rights lawyer in uh, Canada. Um, and they pushed for years to get the inquest into the deaths of the seven kids. Um, actually when the first, um, when the government finally agreed to holding an inquest, they actually only, um, agreed to hold an inquest into one death. Um, Reggie Bushy's death, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to include the others. And so um, Anishinaabeaski Nation, um, they fought for that, um, to to change that. And they eventually won. They convinced the government to hold a larger inquest. But sadly, by the time that the government agreed, there were two more deaths. Mm. Yeah, it's... <sighs> It's it's incredibly heartbreaking. These are such recent histories that we're talking about. You know, the last one that you wrote about was in uh, was in 2011. I think it's yeah, it's very important to kind of contextualize that in the here and now because, as you said, it is still ongoing. Um, before I let you go, you know, something that struck me so much in your reporting and the way that you've told this story so delicately, you know is I suppose just how interwoven these stories are. You know, there's a point in the book where you talk about, Somebody says that it's common for one person to lose seven people in a lifetime and then you look at the way in which these deaths are interwoven, people know people, they're, parts of, you know, they're part of a larger community. It is so tied together. Can you talk to me, I suppose, a little bit about that, you know, that idea of, of these deaths being interlinked and I suppose the, the larger impact of, you know, this intergenerational kind of trauma that, you know, you have spoken about throughout the book and how that, I suppose, plays out in, in what we've seen here. You know, when you lose a child, it is a horrible thing. It's just um, 
Um, it is beyond measure. And um, our children are so precious to us. And our children are often raised, too, by many members of a family, an extended family in an in, indigenous family you know we have um we have mothers and grandmothers and aunties um and cousins and uncles and everyone really takes a role in uh the life of that child and so when the child is lost it affects everyone it impacts so many people um and those losses can be felt and seen um you know i've been traveling uh and i have been traveling over the last several years to the uh, memorials for each of the seven students because one of the um, inquest recommendations after the inquest finished in 2016, um, there was uh, 145 recommendations and one of them were to give the children each proper burials, proper memorials in their communities. And so I've been privileged to attend uh, many of those memorials and um, for instance, the death of uh, of Reggie Bushy, it you know being in the community, about two hundred people came to mourn his passing, and he died thirteen years ago, fourteen years ago. But it was like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. The deaths are still right there. There is something incredibly indescribable about young death as well, and you know. I, I suppose uh, just before I let you go, you know, it is a driving question throughout this whole book, uh, you know, wh- who was responsible, what was responsible for these deaths? You know, I, th- I know it's so multifaceted. I'm interested if, you know, since writing this book, since kind of leaving it for, for a little while, uh, just in terms of your reporting, has have your thoughts on that changed or is it kind of, do you still think in a similar way to when you kind of finished it? Um, sadly, no, my thoughts are still the same. Um, in five of the cases um, of the seven students, uh, two died in their boarding homes and five died in the water, um, the water surrounding Thunder Bay. Um, and in each of those five cases, no evidence was ever brought forward as to how it is the youth got from the river bank or um, the roadway into the water not one piece of evidence. And so to me, those questions have never been answered. Um, and that is a major hole in the investigations into the deaths of the, of the youth. Um, I think that somebody knows what happened. Um, and I think that, um, I think many people played a role in the deaths of the the kids, and I'm talking uh, colonial structures and systems. Um, I'm talking about a lack of uh, caring. Um, I'm talking about racism, but I'm also talking about murder. Um, so it's all of these things mm-hmm. combined together. Tanya Saliga, it's always such a privilege to talk to you and read your work. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. I appreciate speaking to you again, Bethany, and I hope to again soon once my next book comes out. That would be wonderful. Absolutely. I would be honored to chat to you again. Thank you so much for your time today. The honor's mine. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Tanya Talaga there speaking about her book, Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death and Hard Truths in a Northern City. It is out now through Scribe Publications. 
That's right. You are listening to Triple R. The Glass House is the name of the show. Oh, it was incredible to chat to Tanya Talaga. It's a really incredible book if you do get a chance to pick it up, delve into it. It's also available on audiobook. She's a really incredible journalist and there are so many parallels, unfortunately, to the country that we live in. So it does feel particularly relevant. That is it for The Glass House today. I want to say a big thank you to journalist Tanya Talaga for speaking with me this afternoon about her book, Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death and Hard Truths in a Northern City. It is out through Scribe Publications. If you did miss it or miss anything on the Triple R grid, you can always head over to our website. Uh, This show is also available via podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back with you next Wednesday. Keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 